The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Father, we do thank you for the wonderful privilege and opportunity we have as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ to gather together and to worship you by focusing on your word, to learn it, to grapple with all of its various nuances and shades of meaning and application in our lives is one of the most significant things that we do to understand what the living God has to say to each one of us and how we should live and how to have a relationship with Him is the most phenomenal thing in the world. So, Father, we take time out of our lives to, to give You the devotion and honor that You deserve because of all that You have done for us and especially because of our so great salvation which You provided through Your Son, Jesus Christ. So, as we look at Your Word this morning, we pray that we would understand it, that You would uh, help us to understand some of the intricacies of the great doctrine of justification that we may understand all that we have in Christ even better. We pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. Galatians 2, 16. In our study of this chapter in Galatians, we have come to one of the most important verses, I think, in the New Testament, certainly one of the central passages on the doctrine of justification by faith. And so we are pausing to really understand what this doctrine means. I remember in seminary you would hear people say, well, justification means just as if I'd never sinned. And that's a nice little phrase that you often hear people use to try to remember what justification is, but that really has very little, if anything, to do with the doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. And like everything else in life, we learn doctrine incrementally. Isaiah says it's line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little and there a little. And we rarely enter into anything in life where we just learn the whole thing all at once. And um, you, know, you weren't born knowing how to balance your checkbook. You had to go through quite a few years of learning that 1 plus 1 equals 2, and then you had to learn some things about subtraction, 2 minus 1 equals 1. Then you had to go to uh, multiple numbers and, and larger numbers, 3-digit, 4-digit, 5-digit numbers, and then advance through various stages of mathematics to understand different concepts. And that's the same way it is in every endeavor of life. Even, even driving a car, you have to go through a certain number of hours of classroom instruction, learning about the mechanics of a car, learning about what the different parts are called, learning all of the nomenclature so that you can get around and use your car properly and obey the various traffic laws uh, before you ever actually get into a vehicle and put a key in the ignition and start it up and, and start to drive it. And when we come to this doctrine of justification, the goal here is to understand the doctrine. So we'll put a box up here at the top for justification. But justification is a doctrine that is built on several other doctrines. 
So in order to fully understand justification, now we can understand it at one level, that what it means is that God declares us to be absolutely righteous. But that's, a, that's good and that gives us a sort of a, a bearing on the subject, but there's so much more to it than that. Justification is built on another doctrine and that other doctrine is a doctrine of imputation. Imputation is not a word that is used frequently today. It was a common word, especially at the time of the, the King James um, authorized version was translated. And it means to reckon something or to credit something to someone's account. It was a, uh, the uh, Greek word is a, a logizomai, which has to do with a, an act of, of uh, it's an accounting term where you would credit something to someone's account. We're familiar with the act of imputation every time you get a credit card bill where your various charges have been imputed to your account. And so they are real charges. They are yours. They are debts that are held against you. So you, to understand, really truly understand justification, you must first understand imputation. To understand imputation, because there are seven different imputations in the Scripture, we have to decide which imputations are uh, apply in understanding the doctrine of justification. We will see that there are Three, the imputation of Adam's original sin to the individual, the imputation of our sins to the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, and third, the imputation of His righteousness to every believer at the moment of faith alone in Christ alone. So imputation applies, three imputations apply in relation to the doctrine of justification, and they all relate to righteousness. Justification itself comes from the Greek word dikaiao, that's the verb form, D-I-K-A-I-O-O. And it means it's a legal term. It's not an experiential term. It has to do with what takes place in the courtroom of the, in the courtroom of justice. Specifically the Supreme Court of Heaven in relationship to a creature who has fallen and condemned by sin. The imputation is an imputation of righteousness. Righteousness is the Greek word dikaiosune. Transliterated, that's D-I-K-A-I-O-S-U-N-E. Dikaiosune. And that has to do with righteousness or justice. We see that it has both connotations. But imputation is built upon something else. To understand what is imputed to the believer, which is the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, we have to understand some things about the righteousness of God. And so we've gone to Romans 1, 16 and 17, which uses the phrase, Dikaiosune to Theu. That's D-I-K-A-I-O-S-U-N-E, T-O-U, the definite article in the genitive case, and the noun Theu, the genitive of Theos, for God, the righteousness of God. That is what is imputed to the believer. The righteousness, specifically the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So imputation is then built on an understanding of the righteousness and the justice of God, which we have come to understand in conjunction with divine love as the integrity of God. So that is where we are right now in our study. We're building this whole understanding of justification brick by brick, stage by stage 
So when we get to an, an analysis of Paul's explanations here in Romans, uh, I mean Galatians 2:16 and following, we can bring to this topic a, a tremendous background and comprehension. One of the things I, uh, observations I made last week is that in, especially in looking at the subject of divine love, one of the reasons so many people have problems understanding eternal security and the dynamics of our salvation is because they impute to God human love instead of understanding divine love. And human love is very transient. Human love is sentimental. Human love is emotional. Human love is based upon uh, perceived value in the object alone. It's what we call personal love in many cases. But human love also, at least most people's comprehension of human love, is rather superficial. And so when they think of God loving man, they think of God's love for man in the same sense they think of love in their own lives. And so they end up uh, having a rather shallow view of salvation and a salvation that cannot secure uh, the eternal destiny of the believer. So they have a lot of problems there. So it's important to understand this just to give us a, a full sense of our salvation. And the writer of the Hebrews refers to it as our so great salvation. Uh, we as believers need to constantly review the doctrines of soteriology because they help us to understand just what it is that God has done for us the incredible depth and breadth of, of His grace in providing so much for us. And that, in turn, is to motivate us to live for Him and to consistency in the spiritual life. So we are looking at the doctrine of the integrity of God in terms of the righteousness, justice, and love of God. We're looking at uh, building a phrase to understand what goes on here, and that is built on the concept that what the righteousness of God demands the justice of God executes always motivated by the love of God and then expressed through the grace of God which is God's policy to mankind what the righteousness of God demands the justice of God carries out or executes motivated by the love of God and expressed through the grace of God. So then what we say is the righteousness of God is the absolute standard of His character. Righteousness is the basis for His standard, what everything is evaluated by. So what the righteousness of God approves, the justice of God blesses. What the righteousness of God rejects, the justice of God must therefore condemn. But when the righteousness of God rejects and the justice of God condemns, the love of God motivates God to provide the great solution. For God so loved the world that He gave. What motivates God is His divine love. And that's where we find ourselves at the conclusion of last week was studying the issue or the subject of God's love. 1 John 4.16 says that God is love. This is one of the about the only passages that I, I know of that summarizes all of who and what God is in terms of one primary attribute. Now that does not exclude any other attribute. This is a problem that liberal theologians have often had and this is a problem that many people have is they want to take one attribute of God and blow that up and then try to understand everything that God does in light of that one single attribute. Yet God has a variety of attributes and they all work together and they're all 
consistent with one another. His omniscience works in, in conjunction with his righteousness and his love and his veracity. His love works in conjunction with his eternality. He's eternally love. It works in conjunction with his righteousness and his justice. They're never at odds with one another. And we often hear people say, well, how can a loving God send his creatures to the lake of fire? And the issue is not how can a loving God send his creatures to the lake of fire, but how can a righteous God admit sinners into the perfect environment of heaven? So God provides a solution, and there is only one solution. That is provided through Jesus Christ on the cross. So we ended last time in the middle of looking at God's love and creatures, and I want to review those introductory points, and then we will continue. Point number one, under God's love and creatures. When God first created man, Adam and Eve were both righteous and thus were worthy objects of divine love. Now, I made the point last week that divine love is infinitely superior to human love. It, there are analogous, but there is a vast difference between human love and divine love. Human love is sentimental, emotional, superficial, and constantly changing. What is it that provides stability to human love is not emotion, but what is in the soul in terms of mentality. didn't have much time to do a lot of work this week, but one thing I did was look up the definition of emotion in the dictionary to bring that to you to help you understand these concepts a little bit. The dictionary defines emotion as an intense mental state. Now, that's a little fuzzy term right there, so don't confuse that with cognition. Remember, the soul is made up of various components. Those components are self-consciousness, which is our Awareness that we have independent individual identity. Uh, mentality, which is where cog cognitive function takes place. The intellect of the soul. Emotion, which is the area of response, responding to what is in the mentality of the soul. And at times when emotion takes control, we're in rebellion, and that's what's called emotionalism. And you let emotions lead your mentality around, and when that happens, you're always going to be unstable, and you're going to be leading yourself into miserable circumstances. Uh, you have volition. This is the decider in the soul where choices are made. And then we have a conscience. This is where our, our norms and standards reside. So we're talking about primarily here, we're going to be looking at the interrelationship of these three components in the soul. Now, according to this definition, it, emotion is an intense mental state. Now, by mental state, they really refer to the function of the whole soul a state of the soul, not the mind per se. That's going to be clear in a minute. An the tr tr trouble <coughs> excuse me, with using just a standard dictionary to define terms the way we do is they're broad and, they ha and a lot of things haven't been thought through very clearly. And I don't think any, I haven't read very many definitions of emotion that have been thought through clearly either by theologians or by uh, just wordsmiths. An intense mental state that arises subjectively. That means it arises within the individual. An intense mental state that arises subjectively rather than through conscious effort. Okay, it arises subjectively. That means that you don't have, and it's not through conscious effort. Now, that's an important point they're making. If it's not through conscious effort, that means it's not consciously volitional. And if it's not co conscious, then it's not the result of cognition. So by saying it's not through conscious effort, they're immediately eliminating the fact that this is a, a state of cognition or a function of volition. 
And that's why when we usually define, we talk about it in terms of response, a response to certain beliefs within the soul. For example, if I came in here and told you that someone you loved was just killed in an automobile accident, how would you feel immediately, instantly? There would be a response of sadness and sorrow. But then if I came in 10 minutes later and said, no, sorry, I was wrong, it wasn't that person at all, then you would, have, you would be elated, you would be joyful, happy, you'd immediately have a different bank of emotional responses. So emotion has to do with response. Therefore, it's not something that is primarily cognitive or volitional. That's why when we look at things in the Scripture that command love and command joy and command these things that we often think of as, as emotional, they can't be emotional by definition. They have to primarily have to do with uh, information that is controlling the mentality of our soul and have to do with, with uh, facts and thinking and, not, and, and therefore actions and not necessarily how you feel. So according to the definition in, this is the American Heritage Dictionary, an intense mental state that arises subjectively rather than through conscious effort and is often accompanied by physiological changes. Well, that obviously wouldn't apply to God. The second definition that they give is a state of mental agitation or disturbance. Now, that too would not apply to God. So, when we get even into the dictionary, and I'm not satisfied with any of those definitions, I don't think they've grappled very well with the nature of emotion, and and very few people do. But emotion, therefore, is the responder in the soul, and it is something different from the cognitive function and the choosing function of the human soul. Uh, When we define love as that emotion that is generated in us because of pleasing circumstances or a pleasing personality or someone with whom we enjoy a a lot of things in common and some activities together, um, that can change if those circumstances change. That's usually how people define human love and why it doesn't last very long. But the love that we're talking about with God is something that is eternal. It is perfectly stable. It doesn't grow. It doesn't improve. He doesn't fall in love. He doesn't fall out of love. It is based on His uh, eternal, immutable character. God cannot, will not, never does fall in love, maintain His love, or grow in love. It is always the same. It is based upon His omniscience. He has always known all the knowable. He's never going to learn anything about you as a person that He has not known for millions and millions of years. And so you're not going to do something tomorrow or the next day that God was unaware of a million years ago and somehow now that he learns that you've done this he's going to no longer love you or he won't love you as much. See, that's absurd when you realize that God is omniscient. So God's love is eternally stable and his attributes are much beyond our comprehension. So when God first created man Adam and Eve were both perfect righteousness and were worthy objects of divine love. What we saw in our statement earlier is what the righteousness of God demands, the justice of God executes, and the righteousness of God demands absolute perfection. So when God created man, God was perfect righteousness, and man was perfect righteousness, and therefore there was absolute and perfect rapport between God and man from the moment of his creation. The righteousness of God approved the righteousness in Adam and Eve so that the justice of God could bless both of them through the love of God. Point number two, we saw that perfect righteousness can only love perfect righteousness. This is personal love for God. So in the Garden of Eden, God's love for Adam and Eve was personal love. It was based on their righteousness. Because there was absolute and total compatibility between God and Adam, then God loved Adam and Eve personally. 
Point number three, let's define personal love. Personal love is that category of love that is selective, conditional, and dependent. Three key words for understanding it. It's selective, conditional, and dependent upon the appeal or merit of the person loved. In God, personal love is always virtuous because it, is, it comes from the perfect character of God. In man, personal love is rarely virtuous because it is based on, comes from a creature that is a sinner and unstable and constantly changing. In God, personal love is always virtue, virtuous because of His perfect love. Before the fall, God could love mankind personally. In man, personal love requires no virtue on the part of the lover and persists only as long as the object of love remains attractive, likable, and fulfills the expectations of the lover. As soon as that person uh, fails to fulfill those expectations, we see this in, with the high divorce rate today, marriage falls apart and people go their separate way. Only a few chosen people will ever qualify to be objects of personal love in your life. Personal love is based to some degree on some level of knowledge of the, of the person. We're commanded to love all men as believers. That's part of our, the protocol that God has demanded. And I, I liken this in an illustration to the fact that we may be driving down a freeway and there's somebody in front of us who's driving rather obnoxiously. They're driving slower than the speed limit and we're trying to get past them. They're weaving in and out or whatever it is and we have a tendency to get very aggravated and upset with people like that who are blocking our progress on the freeway. And yet we are commanded to deal with them in love. Now, we don't know them. We don't even know what they look like. And yet personal love requires courtesy. It requires uh, treating them with a certain deference and respect and uh, politeness, even though they may be failing to fulfill what we think is required by someone to even possess a driver's license. So we get on the highway and we have to treat them a certain way. And then we get to our destination and we discover to our dismay, especially if we haven't functioned under the category of impersonal love, that their destination is our destination. And then we have to meet them face to face and we get to know them and we discover that they're a rather likable person. And we share many things in common and, and what then begins to happen? You move from impersonal love, which was based on the fact that how you drove and how you treated them on the highway, which had nothing to do with the individual because you don't know them. You wouldn't know them from, from Adam if you saw them at, at the movie theater or on the street or anywhere else. So you, you, we, then you get to know them, and as you get to know them, you develop personal love for them. So personal love is always based on knowledge. And I'm always amazed at believers who say, oh, isn't it wonderful? I just love Jesus. And they talk a lot about loving Jesus, and they don't know enough doctrine to fill a thimble. So how can they love Jesus? because you can't love what you don't know. And you have to know something about someone to, to love them. And you can only love them personally to the degree that you have some knowledge and appreciation for who they are and, and what, what they're like. So personal love is based on knowledge. Impersonal love is based more on stability of character. That brings, that brings us to point four. Point four was that love is based completely on the character, virtue, integrity, uh, our imperson this is impersonal love, is based completely on the character, virtue, integrity, and volition of the person loving. This is called uh, two terms I've used to describe this. One is unconditional and one is impersonal. 
Love that is based completely on the character, virtue, integrity, and volition of the person loving is called either unconditional or impersonal. Now, these two terms stress something a little different. Unconditional stresses the fact that there are no conditions placed on the person loved for the continuance of the loving. No condition. You don't have to fulfill anything, act a certain way, do anything, say anything, respond to presence a certain way, uh, have good manners, bad manners, or whatever in order to be loved. You're going to be loved no matter what you do, no matter how rotten you are, no matter how, how much you fail or the degree of failure, it's always going to be there. This is un- no conditions placed on the individual. Impersonal stresses the fact that there does not need to be a personal relationship. Indeed, there does not even have to be personal knowledge. Because if we're commanded to love all people, it is ridiculous to think that we can know everybody. You can only know um, a few people in your life to a degree where you can have enough personal knowledge to say that you truly love them personally. An impersonal love, it's based not on personal knowledge or intimacy at all or even personal contact with the individual, but simply because of an absolute, and that is who God is and what He did for us in Jesus Christ. And that, too, is based on the fact that every human being is created in the image of God. And because every human being is an image bearer, even though that image is tarnished because of sin and total depravity, we are to treat them a certain way. This is Ephesians 4.32, which has direct application primarily to believers. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. So the model is our uh, uh, is Jesus Christ and how God sent His Son in that while you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. God did not say, I'm going to send a Savior if you'll straighten out. There are no conditions placed there. While you were still sinners, while you were still in a status of rebellion and hostility to me, God says, I sent my Son to die on the cross for you. So that's the role model because of who God is and what Christ did on the cross. Point number five, prior to the fall, God could love man personally because there was complete compatibility and rapport between perfect God and perfect man. So prior to the fall, there's complete and perfect rapport. But point six, after Adam's sin and lost perfect righteousness, there was no longer any compatibility or rapport. Perfect righteousness cannot have a relationship with relative righteousness. Plus R can have no relationship with minus R. So what happened is as God's personal love prior to the fall was the point of contact between God and man. After the fall, personal love was no longer the point of contact because now there is a barrier between God and man and that barrier is comprised of sin. So personal love, it can no longer be the point of contact. And see, that's another problem that many people have is they think that that man's relationship with God is predicated on personal love. But it's not. The starting point for human relationship shifts from personal love because of sin to divine justice, which is the application of divine righteousness toward human creatures. So after the fall, the point of contact is the justice of God, and the justice of God has to be satisfied before God is free to personally love man again. Once you are a believer then personal love once again becomes that point of contact between the believer and his Lord. That's point number seven. With the loss of rapport with God, divine love is no longer the point of contact with man. This is where we stopped last week. 
Now I want to build on this because it has some important implications, especially in church life. Remember, justice is the guardian of divine integrity. God cannot compromise His perfect standard of absolute righteousness. Therefore, divine justice is the point of contact between God and justice between God and man, and justice and righteousness have to be satisfied before God can personally love man again. This means that the solution to human sin had to be first and foremost a solution which satisfies the judicial demands of God based on His righteousness. This is very important. This is setting a legal context for understanding salvation. The average person today wants to understand salvation in relational terms. Oh, what a friend we have in Jesus. Now, that's true, but it also shifts the emphasis away from where the Bible puts the emphasis on our salvation. It's not relational. It's not experiential. You do not evaluate it by your emotions. The criteria is different. The criteria is based on what God's Word says about the situation. The issue has to do with what takes place before the Supreme Court of Heaven. Because the problem is judicial, the solution has to be judicial. Because the problem has to do with the righteousness of God, the the solution has to deal with the righteousness of God. So the solution has has to satisfy the righteous demands of God. Now, this is something that very few people understand today. They often think that God's love is the basis for their relationship with God and not His justice. Then they go beyond that to compound compound the problem by defining love in in silly, superficial, sentimental concepts that totally distort their understanding of God and how God relates to man. Along with compromising the whole doctrine of salvation, they compromise uh, eternal security, they compromise the spiritual life, and they, they, by, by understanding things within this emotional, sentimental context, it then warps their view of the spiritual life. So the spiritual life, rather than being built on something that has absolutes and a judicial concept, they build it on something relational. And, and it just occurred to me, we're seeing a perfect example today of this failure to understand law and the judicial process and what's going on with our president. So many people are saying, why can't we put this behind us? Because we are a nation that is ruled by law. And law establishes the protocol. Law establishes the standards that when this situation occurs, you have to go through certain processes. And those are clearly spelled out in the Constitution. Now, it doesn't matter what the circumstances are that give rise to that situation. It doesn't matter whether it's a a heinous sin such as murder or, uh, or theft or rape, or some kind of violent crime, or whether it has to do with uh, uh, something that we might consider to be a, a tremendous violation of law, or whether it might be something minor, or whether it might relate to some incident in, a, in the president's private life. The issue is that once you go into a court of law, and you are sworn under oath, then you have to start operating under the guidelines of legal principles. You don't have any options anymore. That's what we mean when we say that this is a nation ruled by law and that nobody is above the law. And it doesn't matter what the circumstances might be that puts you in the situation, whether you're talking about whether your dog jumped over the fence and ran, ran off, or whether you're talking about some sort of illicit personal relationship, or whether you're talking about embezzlement or moving funds or selling secrets to a foreign power. It doesn't matter how serious the incident is. The issue is telling absolute truth 
under oath. So what we learn here is that the American people don't understand forgiveness for one thing because forgiveness in the Scripture is always based on having, a, having an admission and payment of a price. And number two, it's always based on satisfying legal demands to the letter of the law. And those legal demands are satisfied in terms of our relationship with God completely and absolutely by Jesus Christ on the cross. So we have to understand that the, that the framework for salvation is judicial. And, and that gives us tremendous security because law always spells everything out in detail. And we have to operate within the, the guidelines of law, whatever it might be. So we understand that most people in this country do not understand what it means to, to, to operate legislatively, judicially, or legally. And if they can't understand that, then they're going to have tremendous problems understanding the basis for their salvation. So if we look at this, we have to understand it starts with a judicial concept. If we get into the idea that it's based on love and emotion, then how do you think that's going to affect your view of the spiritual life? Well, you're going to come to church, and rather than sitting down and looking at principle and studying principles and absolutes which apply to your life and using those principles and absolutes as the criteria for evaluating your Christian life. This doesn't mean that you don't have any emotion, but that emotion is not the criteria. And as we watched what's happened in evangelical Christianity over the last century, as they've lost, as they've gone further and further away from the, the 19th century understanding of these great doctrines of justification as being primarily forensic and judicial and that goes all the way back to our heritage with the Reformation as they become more and more relational in their understanding and more and more emotional now emotion takes over as the criteria they have this distorted emotional sentimental view of God and when they come to church they have to get their emotions jazzed up they have to feel all excited and enthusiastic in order to feel like they worship so then emotion becomes a criteria for worship. It becomes your criteria for the spiritual life. And then you go through life saying, well, you know, my relationship with God is dependent upon how I feel. And so, so you don't feel like you have a relationship with God, so you think that, that somehow God has left you. But God operates on the principles of His Word, and He tells you what those are. And if you've sinned, you lose fellowship. And if you, if you confess your sin, even though you still may regret it, you still may uh, feel very contrite and, and, in fact, maybe shocked about some personal sin in your life. God says if you admit it to Him, He forgives you and cleanses you instantly, and it is no longer an issue. That's a judicial fact. And so you have to rely upon that fact and believe it and move forward in the Christian life. If you don't and you cave into emotion and guilt and regret and all of this, then you're sinning again. You're saying, well, God really didn't forgive me. I'm really not cleansed. And the result is continuous failure in the spiritual life and that you don't grow. So God's love, so we have to understand that God's love is really different from uh, any conception of human love. This is part of the principle in Isaiah 55, 9, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Human emotion is far beneath God. Emotions vary, they go up and down and they're often part of human instability. When a person comes to the Bible thinking that God's love is like human emotional love then he's going to have a distorted view of God a distorted view of salvation and a distorted view of how God relates to man in the spiritual life he's always going to end up in some kind of subjective basis for evaluating the spiritual life and that's going to take him right into mysticism 
and where we are today in terms of uh, contemporary Christian music. Contemporary Christian music is designed to elevate your emotions, to lift you up and make you feel good because the underlying rationale, the underlying philosophy is that worship is evaluated by how, you, how it makes you feel, whether it makes you feel like you've had an encounter with God or not. And that's the wrong criteria. It, and a lot of times it doesn't matter so much what the words are. Even when they take Scripture words, they apply it to a form of music that is designed to make you feel spiritual. And it's that kind of sloppy, slow, sway type back and forth music that makes you just kind of ooze emotion and feel like you're close to God and oh, isn't it all so wonderful and let's just go home holding hands. And you know, it just makes me bilious. So we try to stay away from that as much as we can in the type of singing that we have here because we want to use songs that prepare us and music that prepare us to think. It's a wonderful book that came out about 10 years ago by Alan Bloom, who was the head of the classics department at the University of Chicago. And this was not written from a Christian perspective. I don't know what the man's religious background was. I doubt that he was a believer. But he has a chapter on music, and it's a critique of higher education. And in his chapter on music, he just says some, makes some incredible observations and says some very important things about how different types or styles of music, we're not talking about words, we're just talking about music itself. Different types and styles of music have different effects on your cognitive state. They either help you think, help you concentrate, help you focus, or they, or they build up your emotions and they tear down your ability or destroy your ability to think and to concentrate. And he's talking about in the, in the university environment, so many students spend their days listening to certain types of music and then they have a hard time coming to class and concentrating for more than five or ten minutes. Well, what's happened in, the, in church life in the last 20 or 30 years is that we're imitating the world in the style of music because we like certain kinds of music. I'm a great lover of certain uh, uh, contemporary music that I grew up with and, and I enjoy a lot of different styles of music and have rather eclectic tastes, really. But when it comes to Sunday morning and worshiping God, I don't want to use m- music that mirrors a Beatles song or Grateful Dead or anybody else in order to develop uh, uh, music just because that's the culture out of which I came from. And what happens in churches today in order to reach the unbeliever, they say, well, they come into church and they, they sing this music that's not familiar. It's not anything like the music they listen to on the radio. Well, thank God. You know, the point is that you have to prepare people for worship. You have to prepare people to, to study and think and concentrate, and you have to have the right kind of music and framework in music to do that. There was a great article in Newsweek magazine about a year and a half ago that talked about brain development. And one of the observations in the article was that if you want your children to develop cognitive skills in the area of science and mathematics, then when they're infants, play a lot of classical music for them. Because classical music is based on very precise mathematical ratios. And as that music plays, it has a dynamic effect on the nerve endings in the brain and helps develop certain, certain corridors of thought and certain nerve developments and dendrite developments that enable them, building those channels in their brain very early, later on in life, they will be able to function better in mathematics and science than without that. That doesn't mean that it completely limits or prohibits, but if you want to improve their ability, then that's something you can do. And that's just an example of how certain types of music have certain certain kinds of impact on uh, mental development, both physically and cognitive development within the brain. 
So music is very, very important, and yet when you start thinking about God in terms of this sloppy sentimentalism, then it's going to ultimately impact the kind of music you like and what you look for when you come into church and how you evaluate your own spiritual life and your own worship. Rather than using the absolutes of doctrine as your criteria, you begin to shift to a subjective, mystical, emotional type of criterion, and the result is it waters down and dilutes Christianity and destroys its impact. That brings us to point eight. We look at how point seven was a very long point in discussion. Point seven, with the loss of rapport with God, divine love was no longer the point of contact between man and God. Point eight, therefore the love of God expressed towards sinful, fallen, unregenerate mankind is impersonal and unconditional. The love of God is impersonal and unconditional. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His unique Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Impersonal love in God emphasizes the perfect and absolute qualities of God rather than the failures of man. Divine impersonal love does not require compatibility, intimacy, friendliness, or attraction with man in order to be sustained. It's based solely and exclusively on the stability of God's own character. Point number nine. Once a person is regenerate, then God loves them personally because now it is based on the imputed righteousness of Christ. Here's God. And here's man. God is plus R. When man is a sinner and God looks down and sees that, justice is not satisfied and God can only love impersonally, never on the basis of what's here. But when a person accepts Christ as their Savior, at that instant they are credited with the perfect righteousness of Christ. Now they're still a sinner. They still possess a sin nature and there is no sin that they cannot commit. Uh, in fact, many believers, because they have no doctrine whatsoever, in fact, have rejected doctrine, may be much, much worse than many, un- many unbelievers. So God the Father looks down and He sees this perfect righteousness in man, and because of that, He can once again have personal love. And because He has personal love for that, that believer, He can then bless that believer, not on the basis of what that believer has done, but on the basis of the fact that they possess the perfect righteousness of God. So when you come to a verse like Matthew 6.33 that says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, this is not a verse that is focusing on the practical righteousness of Christian growth. This is a verse that is focusing on imputed righteousness at the point of salvation because the context is talking about all the basic provisions that God has for the believer, that He's going to take care of their basic needs logistical grace. He's going to take care of food, shelter, clothing, providing Bible doctrine for them, all these basic needs. Just as the, the sparrow does, he takes care of the sparrow, he takes care of the flowers of the field, so God is going to take care of you. Not because of anything you do. You don't have to go out and become righteous in order for God to bless you and take care of you provisionally. But if you seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness, i.e. trust Christ as your Savior, which gains you entrance into the kingdom of God, and you receive the righteousness of God at that point, then God will bless you and provide all these things for you automatically because you possess the perfect righteousness of Christ. So point nine, once a person is regenerate, then God loves It's critical for understanding our development in the spiritual life 
both in terms of divine blessing and divine discipline. Point number 10. In the post-fall world, that is, since Adam's fall, justice always precedes love. Point number 10. This is what you have to understand. Justice always precedes love. God's justice has to be satisfied before His personal love is free to be exercised on your behalf. As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, because we have the imputed righteousness of Christ, we are the beneficiaries of divine personal love and we can have harmonious rapport with God in the spiritual life. After salvation, His love becomes our point of reference. But that's not true for the unbeliever. The unbeliever still has to deal with the issue of divine justice and the application of, of Christ's death on the cross to his life. Which means, point 11, because divine justice is satisfied, man can have a relationship with God. God the Father poured out on Jesus Christ all the personal sins of the human race. Justice precedes love. Love motivates but justice has to be satisfied before God can exercise personal love towards man. At the cross, God never did cease loving God the Son. So God the Son was insulted, abused, and whipped, and He did not cry out on the cross until He bore our sins in His body on the cross. When God the Father imputed the sins of the world to Him, at that point He screamed. But God's treatment of Him on the cross demonstrates that when God deals with sin, it was not his love for God, God the Father's love for God the Son that was the issue. It was God, the satisfaction of God the Father's justice that was the issue. Divine justice, therefore, takes precedence over divine love. And the last point, in point 12, this also means that God is never impressed with our good deeds. The issue is not our works. That's why Paul is able to say in Galatians 2.16, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, God is never impressed by our morality. God is never impressed by our good deeds. God is never impressed by all the things that we think somehow impress Him. He does not love us because we are so lovable. As much as you think God loves you because you're basically a really nice person, that has nothing at all to do with why God loves you. God loves you because you are one of His creatures and you are in the image of God. And if you are a believer, God has personal love for you because you possess the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. After salvation, we can never earn divine approval or blessing. We already have it. It is ours at the moment of salvation because we possess the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. So then we're able to say that what the righteousness of God approves, the justice of God blesses through the love of God and expressed through the grace of God. Which brings us to the fourth part of our, of our formula. We talked about the righteousness of God, the justice of God, the love of God, and now we come to the grace of God. The grace of God, grace is God's policy towards mankind. In a very simple, almost simplified way, grace means undeserved favor, undeserved merit. It means a gift, a free gift, something you neither earn nor deserve. God the Father decided in eternity past that His policy towards mankind would be exclusively based upon grace because there was nothing that fallen man could ever do to gain his approval or his merit. In fact, even our best works on our own, the Scripture says, are as filthy rags. We've been looking at Romans 1, 16-17, which says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it, that is, the gospel of Christ, is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, 
to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein, that is, in the gospel, is the righteousness of God revealed. So the righteousness of God, what we're talking about in terms of justice and, and righteousness, is revealed in the function of the gospel. So let's understand grace. Grace is the point number one. Grace is the policy of God's integrity in bestowing His unmerited favor on sinful humanity. Grace is the policy of God's integrity in bestowing His unmerited favor on sinful humanity. God is free to do so much for mankind because Christ did everything for man on the cross. On the cross, Jesus Christ solved the greatest problem you and I will ever face or can ever face. And just by virtue of that, we ought to remember, just in terms of application, that if God solved the greatest problem we can ever face at the cross, then God can solve any other problem we ever face in life. If He can solve the greatest problem, He can solve any other problem. And that's grace. Grace has to do with a free gift. Revelation 22 says we are all to come to the water and drink freely. There are no conditions placed upon salvation. So grace testifies to God's integrity because God completely paid the price for our sins. Isaiah 30:18 says, Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you. That is, God constantly desires to bless the believer. That's his motivation from love. God, the Lord waits to be gracious to you and he is on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of blessing and justice. Notice the connection between the two. The Lord is a God of blessing and justice. How blessed are those who wait for him. That's the function of the faith rest drill and learning doctrine. Point number two under, under grace. Grace is not only the basis for salvation, it is the basis for the spiritual life. Grace is not only the basis for salvation, it is the basis for everything in the spiritual life. This is preparing us for what we're going to get to in Galatians chapter 3. At salvation, God's grace provided 40 different things for every single believer. It gave you an incredible array of spiritual assets so that you can live the spiritual life, so that you can face and handle any situation, no matter what it is that comes into your life. So let's remind ourselves of what the basic categories of grace are. Basic categories of grace, first of all, there's common grace. Common grace refers to those acts of divine benevolence which are common to all mankind believer and unbeliever. These are general blessings from God to all mankind which include the natural bounties of the earth, food and air and water, sustenance, the restraint of sin by the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's function as a human spirit in the unbeliever at the point of gospel hearing so they can understand the nature of the gospel. The common grace extends God's blessings to all mankind, believer and unbeliever. They relate to natural blessings food, shelter, clothing, water, uh, just the the air we breathe, uh, the restraint of sin by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit's function as a human spirit at the point of gospel hearing. Second category of grace is efficacious grace. Efficacious grace is that grace which is effective towards salvation. That's where we get that word. It's that grace which is effective towards salvation. This is a specific ministry of God the Holy Spirit who acknowledges and transforms the faith of a spiritually dead person and makes it effective for salvation. You're spiritually dead at the point of gospel hearing, therefore nothing you can do can save yourself. 
God the Holy Spirit takes your faith when you say, I believe Christ died on the cross for my, sin, for my sins, and that faith is exclusively based on Jesus Christ alone, then God the Holy Spirit takes that faith and makes it effective for salvation. Without the work of the Holy Spirit, the volition of an unbeliever would never result in eternal life alone. The next category is saving grace. Saving grace is that aspect of grace which relates to providing everything necessary to bring the believer into a permanent relationship with God the Father. Saving grace extends to all those doctrines and all the works of God that brings about a permanent relationship with God. Fourth category of grace is logistical grace. This has to do with basic grace blessings and providing physical and spiritual sustenance in the life of the believer. This is for providing both physical needs, food, shelter, and clothing to keep the believer alive in, in Satan's world, and spiritual truth, teaching doctrine, uh, spiritual nourishment so the believer can grow to spiritual maturity and carry out his uh, assigned role as a witness in the appeal trial of Satan. Logistical grace is indispensable in fulfilling the plan of God. Logistical grace means that God is going to bless you logistically irregardless of your obedience or disobedience. That's all that some believers ever experience is logistical grace. But if you want to have greater grace, our fifth category, greater grace, there are various stages of greater grace blessings according to James uh, chapter 4, greater grace blessings, are those that go to the growing and maturing believer. Not because he is obedient, but because as he learns, doc- as he learns doctrine and as he grows to maturity, he develops capacity for utilizing those blessings that God has for him. God has determined a certain amount of blessings for every single believer from eternity past. These blessings are contingent. They are totally contingent upon your spiritual growth. God is not going to bless you beyond your capacity. They're already given to you. These blessings are yours. They have your name on them. But you need to grow to certain levels of maturity if you're going to be able to utilize them. For example, uh, let's say you have a child and they're growing up and they never reach a level of maturity where you think they ought to handle a moving vehicle. So you never give them the keys to the car. It doesn't have anything to do with their obedience or disobedience. It has to do with their capacity to safely drive a a motor vehicle. That's the way it is with the Lord. He's not going to give us those blessings until we're ready for them because if He gave them to us before we're ready for them, then they would be self-destructive. So God the Father holds them in reserve until we reach a certain level of spiritual maturity. So there are five categories of grace, common grace, efficacious grace, saving grace, logistical grace, and greater grace blessings. And point number three, no one has any special privileges or position with God. Remember, the justice of God is absolutely impartial and the blessing of God from the justice of God is based on the perfect righteousness of Christ, which is the same for every single believer. So no one, no believer has any special privileges or any position with, special position with God. Romans 2.11 says, For there is no partiality with God. Now what we have done is we've looked at the whole issue of righteousness and justice as it's going to relate to imputations. We have seen that what the righteousness of God approves, the justice of God blesses. What the righteousness of God condemns, 
the just uh, or rejects the justice of God, condemns, uh, is motivated by the love of God and expressed by the grace of God. Because of this, God the Father provided a perfect solution in our, our salvation, such that Jesus Christ does all the work on the cross. And because of His salvation, when we put faith alone in Christ alone, His perfect righteousness is imputed to us. And that brings us to the subject of imputations, which we'll cover next Sunday morning, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank You for the opportunity to understand these important dynamics underlying our salvation. How Your righteousness, justice, and love work together in perfect compatibility uh, to, to uh, provide our so great salvation. That by the work of Christ on the cross, we can have an eternal relationship with You that is permanent and unchanging. Never dependent upon who and what we are, but is always dependent upon who and what You are. And therefore, we can relax and have perfect confidence knowing that there is nothing that can ever separate us from Your perfect love. Father, we pray that if there is anyone here this morning that is not sure of their eternal destiny, that they would take the opportunity right now to say, Father, I believe Christ died on the cross for my sins. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So, Father, we commit this time to You and pray that You will help us to think about these things and clarify them in our, in our souls in this coming week. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.